Let's hear God's holy word. Genesis 18, beginning in verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. If not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham, st- but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Well, Abraham's uh, amazing meal that he had with God uh, was now over. We saw that in the first part of this chapter. And uh, in that meal, God had restated his promise to Abraham and Sarah to further strengthen their faith. You remember, the Lord just keeps doing that. He's given his promise of this child, and he just keeps uh, reaffirming it, restating it, uh, reassuring them of his faithfulness, that he will give them this promised child. And uh, at this point in their lives, it, it, uh, it certainly seemed necessary that they needed strengthening for their faith because it seemed all but impossible that they would have a child. Of course, remember, they're 90 and 100 years old, respectively. Uh, It was physically impossible. Uh, The way of women had uh, passed from Sarah. Uh, There there was no physical way that this was going to happen in a natural sense. 
But what did God say? Remember, God made that great statement in the form of a question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Of course, that question has an answer. And it's one that should really change the way we think about God and the way we think about uh, what he might do for us and in our lives and through us. God uh, wants us, like Abraham and Sarah, wants us to live by faith. One of the pillars of our faith is his power. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. He's able to keep all his word. What he says he will do, he will indeed do. Well, after the meal, Abraham went for a walk with his guests. They're on their way to leave him, and Abraham walks along with them. Here we see a couple things. We see, one, uh, God's closeness with Abraham. There's an intimacy in this relationship that is uh, beautiful to see. We also see God's justice here. In verses 16 and 17, we read, They looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham, what I am about to do. Abraham didn't know yet what the Lord was about to do. He didn't know what was coming to Sodom and Gomorrah. So the Lord does make that known to him. But first here, he explains why he's going to tell Abraham about these things. Verses 18 and 19, we read, Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So God chose Abraham. He chose him and he intended to make him a channel of blessing to the world. God also chose him so that he could be a blessing to his descendants that he would teach his descendants the ways of the Lord. So these are some of the outcomes of God choosing Abraham. These are actually purposes that God has for us as well as believers in Christ. He wants us to be a blessing to others, not just to seek his blessing for ourselves so that we can be blessed, so that we can enjoy the good things of the Lord, but so that we can bless others. That's how we ultimately find our our greatest happiness, our greatest fulfillment, our greatest blessedness, and that is by, by being a blessing to others. So make that your prayer. Make that your prayer, that the Lord would make you a blessing to not only your children, to your family, but to all the people around you in your life. It is a prayer that he will certainly honor and answer. And again, he says here that we're Uh, He chose Abraham to teach uh, righteousness and justice to his children. That, too, is something that he wants us to do. We need to teach our descendants uh, what is right and what is good. And we need to teach them that God, uh, the true God, is the source of all good. Those characteristics, love, of uh, righteousness and justice and uh, goodness... And all those sorts of characteristics uh, and uh, principles that we like to extol, they only exist because they exist in God, first and foremost. 
He is good. He is just. He is righteous. These are his attributes. And he calls us to be like him, to live in these ways ourselves. And this is the fruit of the Spirit in our lives now that he produces for all who are in Christ. He replicates his own beautiful, perfect character in our lives through the Spirit. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah were notorious for doing just the opposite, being just the opposite. They were uh, notorious for their ungodliness and, and doing the very opposite of what is right and just. And Abraham and all God's people are about to get a very uh, powerful object lesson, seeing what God is about to do to these cities. This is something that's going to help Abraham to instruct his descendants. And that is the judgment that God is going to send on Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to provide a vivid lesson. And it teaches us still. It teaches us in every age what happens to people who reject God and his ways. Notice something else here. God chooses Abraham and in so doing, he makes Abraham his friend. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful part of the doctrine of election. We usually maybe don't think about election that way, but that's the outcome of the doctrine of election. God choosing before the foundation of the world, his people. In the course of time, he effectually calls those people to salvation, to spiritual life. He makes us alive in Christ. He makes us his friends, friends of God in Jesus Christ. We're not his friends by nature. Neither was Abraham. Abraham was an enemy of God. And while he was still yet God's enemy, that's when God called him. Called him because he had long before in eternity past chosen Abraham. And he called him in the course of time, and now here it is, Abraham walking in friendship. He is a friend of God. So it's not surprising that we see God talking with Abraham the way he does here, disclosing himself to Abraham. He's sharing his plan with his friend. Kent Hughes writes, Servants may not know their master's plans and purposes, but friends do. Friends do. And God here shared his secret plans with his friend Abraham. He wants Abraham to know these things. He wants him to know, uh, among other uh, things, he wants him to know that when that calamity comes, when that, that uh, terrible event comes upon the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, it didn't happen by chance. It wasn't just some random occurrence, some natural disaster, uh, as uh, we like to call them. This was no random event at all. It would be a supernatural judgment on human wickedness by this personal God. Sodom's condition is described here in verses 20 and 21. We're told the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is grievous. Now, we tend to think of the sin of these cities as being mainly uh, the sin of homosexuality. And that's part of the story. We certainly see that in the story, but that's only part of the, si <clears throat> the sin of Sodom. 
Sodom and Gomorrah. One writer, <clears throat> commentator Sarna, puts it this way. He says this outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is the anguished cry of the oppressed. It is the agonized plea of the victim for help in the face of great injustice. The sin of Sodom was a heinous moral and social corruption, an arrogant disregard of basic human rights, a cynical insensitivity to the suffering of others. Think about Amos and uh, those kinds of prophecies of judgment um, that he spoke of for all the terrible uh, wrongs and uh, oppression and injustice that was going on in Israel. These were the kinds of things that were happening in Sodom, Gomorrah. Other passages in the Bible actually support this. It isn't just some commentator uh, coming up with this idea. Ezekiel describes the people of Sodom, and he says this, this was the sin of Sodom. They were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. It seems many of these people were very prosperous. We know that. It was a good land. It was a good area, an area that could make one prosperous. Lot saw it, and he knew right then this was, this was the way to make his dreams come true, settle in this place. And he did become very prosperous there. And many of the people were that way, but they were selfish. They only cared about themselves. And some of their prosperity, it seems, came at the expense of the poor and needy. There was oppression of uh, many people. And uh, these who were affluent gave no help to the weak and needy. They victimized them. And so uh, it may be that these people, these suffering ones, literally cried out to God and he heard them. Or, or maybe this is just an expression that, uh, that, that speaks of God's omniscience. God knows all things. He knows uh, the evil that men do. Uh, man's sin is like uh, a stench that rises to heaven, like the blood of Abel. Uh, there wasn't literally a person crying out to God there. Uh, it was just God's knowledge of what had taken place there, that Abel's blood would sh was shed and the evildoer needed to be punished. In that same way, God knew what was going on here in Sodom and Gomorrah. He sees, he knows in our day as well, all evil. He knows all things, and he hates all evil. So these towns should not just be known for uh, the sin of homosexuality. They should be known for these, uh, these much more common uh, inhuman evils, man sinning against his fellow man with oppression and injustice. Now, we live in a society just like this, very much like Sodom and Gomorrah. David Wells writes, There is violence on earth. The liberated search only for power. Industry despoils the earth. The powerful ride roughshod over the weak. The poor are left to die in the streets. The unborn are killed before they ever see the beautiful world that God has made. The elderly are encouraged to get on with the business of dying so the young can take their place. The sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are still alive and well in our world today, all around us, and they flow from man's sinful heart. 
God still sees these. He still hears the cries of the sufferer. He will act. And that is something that we should all take to heart. Verse 21, God says, I will go down and see if what they've done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, there's probably a better English translation that could express what God was saying here. It's not that God didn't really know what was going on, and he had to go make a careful investigation. He had to really look into it to make sure that the facts were established. God, again, doesn't uh, miss a thing. He knows all things. He doesn't have to be informed. He doesn't have to study things or investigate. Think of just the previous passage where uh, the Lord heard Sarah's laugh. Sarah laughed, but it was an inward laugh. It wasn't audible. There was no sound, but the Lord knew. It was a laugh of unbelief. He knew what was in her heart. Similar way, Jesus later on warned, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. He could say that because God has a perfect, comprehensive knowledge of all our words, and not only our words, but even our thoughts, the very motives of our hearts. So what God is doing here, it seems, is really saying something that's probably more for Abraham's sake. He knows the facts already. God knows the facts. But he's saying, Abraham, you don't have to worry about me doing something. And this, I think, fits the context, as we see as Abraham begins to plead for these people. And he's, he's saying, Lord, uh, don't, don't do anything uh, unjust. You, you, you have to do what is just and right. God's saying, Abraham, you don't have to worry about me being unjust, judging these people in an unjust way. I won't be unfair to them. Again, Kent Hughes has a good, uh, a good way of explaining this. He says, through a huge act of condescension, the Lord responded, anthropomorphically to Abraham, like a, like a mere human being, saying, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. By this, he assured Abraham that he would base his judgment on full, accurate information. God would send his angels on a fact-finding mission to gather information that the Lord already perfectly knew. Well, now look at Abraham's intercession in verses 22 to 25. Read, we'll just look briefly at this. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, and Abraham still stood before the Lord, and then he drew near and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50? Far be it from you to do such a thing or to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And on and on it goes. We won't read the whole thing again, but it's beautiful to see Abraham making intercession here like this. There's a lot good and admirable about Abraham interceding with God like this. But some of it is, is not so good. He seems to maybe doubt God's justice, almost as if he has to remind God, you have to be just, you have to do the right thing. 
He also seems to think that the righteous should never have to suffer temporal judgments that the wicked might face. You know, that's not true. But one thing that is very right, that's right on with Abraham here, is I think the way he shows a real heart for sinners. He probably knew many of these Sodom and Gomorrah. He certainly knew Lot, and Lot certainly knew many of the people there. Abraham didn't want them to perish, even though they deserved it. Abraham shows us here a picture of God's heart towards sinners. Now, I don't think we need to think that Abraham was more merciful, more compassionate than God. I don't think so. That's not the case. It was God who was prompting Abraham to pray for these people. Derek Kidner writes, The initiative in this whole intercession was with God. He broached the subject himself. He waited for Abraham's plea, and he chose the point at which the conversation would end. Let's remember scripture that says God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's why we're urged as well in scripture to pray for the lost, to pray for salvation for all kinds of people. We should also not think that God will save the lost without our praying. He certainly could, but he has ordained the means as well as the ends. One of those means the prayers of the Son calls us to pray with compassion for the lost and to share the gospel with the lost. And he delights to answer those prayers and bless those efforts. Notice, too, God didn't rebuke Abraham. He doesn't, doesn't even correct Abraham for his um, compassionate heart for these wicked people, these people that are going to be judged by the Lord. Abraham cared about them. He didn't want them to be judged. God doesn't correct him. God doesn't rebuke him for this. You know, there are Christians, say professing Christians, who have nothing but disdain for the lost. And some of those people are in our churches, in Reformed churches, in Christ-centered, gospel-focused churches. That is not an accurate reflection of the God that we see in Scripture. God is perfect in his holiness and justice, but he's also full of compassion and mercy. God loves the world that he made. He has a heart for the lost, even though he chooses not to save them all. But our heart, it seems, should reflect his heart for the lost, his concern, his compassion. We are called to be like God. If we know him, we will want to be like him. We will hate evil, but we'll also have a heart for the lost who are made in God's image and don't know their right hand from their left, spiritual. God revealed these things he was about to do to Abraham. And because Abraham knows God and because he's growing to be like God, he had that heart for these wicked people and he interceded on their behalf. May God give us that same kind of heart, that same kind of concern for the lost. We all could stand to grow in that way. I know I could. May he convince us of the reality of his coming judgment that is coming upon all who remain apart from Christ. His spirit stir us to pray fervently for them, willing to share the message of Christ with them. came across a quote from a, a newspaper writer in Scotland 
who wrote on the subject of hell. Writer John McLeod wrote a little bit of a long quote, close with this. I never doubted the reality of the hell of deep and everlasting darkness, but I've never thought about it in popular terms, like a nasty boiler room run by little men in red tights. Hell is ultimately a negative a place of nothing but anguish, a place without God and without anything of God, without light, without warmth, without friendship, without peace. The wicked ones of history will be there, the killers and the exploiters, they will be there, libertines and gossips, rapists, and drunkards, those whose gods were sex or money or ambition or power, they will be there. Catholics, Baptists, Presbyterians, if their faith was only religiosity and denominational adherence, they will be there. And in the darkest, thickest corner of all will be the nice ministers, the benevolent bishops who told people that it was heaven for all and that love was all that mattered. And I believe, too, that there will be only one escape from hell, by flight to Jesus Christ and faith in his finished work, living in his service, but never looking to those toils for our salvation. But there is the final paradox. To believe in this latter end of all things, to live and walk in a world that must one day melt in fervent heat, and to walk now among the living dead with my bright smile and polite talk and never to challenge, never to warn. When we have seen our God in his righteousness, and we have seen the wickedness of humanity, we know the end that must come. But the one who knows the heart of God has the heart of God, and it is not the heart of God that the wicked should perish but that they would turn and repent and find salvation. May the Lord give us all that kind of heart for the lost. May he give us all that kind of godly burden to pray for the salvation of lost and needy sinners and also the love to be willing to point them to the only Savior, the only way of salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us, give us the mind and heart of the Lord Jesus, toward sinners. Make us, make us people who love righteousness and justice and also people who love our fellow men. Give us, give us a, a heart of compassion for the lost, uh, just as you have had toward us. Give us a, a faithful witness uh, in this dying world. And We pray you might even use us and our, our witness to save some and point them to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.